We're all making it up as we go. Mm. We're all figuring this thing out. This is a tough business. Mm. There is no playbook exactly mm-hmm. on how to do this because every market's different. Every employee is different. Every owner's different. We're in a tough industry. And it's a very rewarding industry that we've chosen. I mean, we, we get to provide a high, not just a high level of value, but we're providing one of the basic needs. Right? Mm-hmm. I tell my team, guys, we're in the, the life improvement business. I don't throw darts at a board. I bet on sure things. Read Sun Tzu, The Art of War. Every battle is won before it's ever fought. Think about it. Welcome to another episode of the Profitable Property Management Podcast. Today, I have none other than the OG Mark Cunningham in the house. Mark, how you doing? I'm doing wonderful, Jordan. Thank you. Appreciate you coming on, brother. Mark, one thing I appreciate about you is that you have a lot of context and a lot of first-hand context on the industry. You're a, I was going to say everything from an author to a speaker. I think the only thing you haven't done is being an author. Have you published any books yet? No, and I will not be doing so. Oh, it seems like it's somewhere in your future. Never say never, (laughs) but you do a lot of speaking, a lot of teaching, a lot of coaching, and obviously you're running your own shop. Let's start there. Your own property management business. How long in business? How many doors? What's the staff headcount? Give me some background. Yeah. Yeah. So in uh, in 1978, if we go way back in time, right? I mean, Jimmy Carter was in year number two of his presidency, and interest rates I think were 18 percent to buy a house, if we can imagine that. At that same that same year, uh, my dad decided that he was done being a middle school teacher, and he was going to open up a property management and real estate company. So he'd kind of stumbled into that, being an apartment manager, and so he opened up uh, Grace Property Management in Denver, mm-hmm. and uh, I kind of I was kind of employee number one because I was free child labor. So my dad would have me doing everything that needed to be done. I mean, I, I painted more doors and I mowed more lawns and I collected more rent. And, and I, that's what I kind of grew up doing. So it gave me a real unique view into real estate, into property management, into business, uh, kind of in general. So as I got older, I'd spend my summers working for my dad, doing whatever needed to be done, working outside, working inside. And uh, I went to Colorado State University. I studied finance. I studied real estate. I did some other things in the real estate world for a number of years after I graduated in, in investing in real estate and commercial and management, just a whole bunch of stuff. And uh, one day, my dad called me. I was living and working in Cheyenne. Have you been to Cheyenne? Wyoming? I have not. No. Okay, well, don't, don't, made don't waste there. your time. It's not the end of the world, but it's real close. And my dad called me and said, hey, I need to hire a property manager. Job's yours if you want it. So I jumped at that opportunity. And that was 20 years ago, I guess. Uh, so we've kind of, our company has grown slow and steady. We've got about 1,000 doors, uh, just over 1,000 doors in the Denver area. We've got a team of 20-some-odd folks. Mm-hmm. Uh, we do residential. We do commercial. We, we're investors ourselves. So I, I invest in real estate. We, we buy and hold. We flip. Uh, our mantra is follow the opportunity. Mm. Right? What's the opportunity in real estate today? Because it, it changes. Mm-hmm. Right? The opportunity in real estate 10 years ago looks nothing like the opportunity to put that word in air quotes, in real estate today versus 10 years before that. So I, I started investing in real estate many years ago, and I'm, I'm kind of out of that now. I don't think that's the opportunity today. Um, but that's where we are today. So follow the opportunity. You're saying it's shifted for you over time. Yeah. When you kind of reflect back on the growth of the business, you've got a pretty long tenure in it. 
What have you seen in terms of changes and, and the most notable shifts in the industry over your duration? It, I've been, I have not been in nearly as long as you have, if you were, you know, swinging hammer and doing inspections as a kid, but I've seen quite a bit of change. Mm -hmm. what, what are some of the most notable shifts you've seen over the last decade or two? So if we look at, at both from the investor standpoint and then the property management standpoint, all right, so if we kind of break those two down. So let's look just the investor side real quickly. So the, the first rental property I bought, I moved to Phoenix, Arizona when I was 20 years old, and I bought a, uh, bought a rental property, and it was a non-qualifying assumable loan is what it was called, non-qualifying assumable. I didn't have a job. I was unemployed. I had no, no money. I had no credit. I had, I had nothing. I went in, and I signed a piece of paper, and I owned a rental property because anybody could assume the loan. So it was easy to buy, mm -hmm. right? That's how it was back then. Anybody could buy anything they wanted. Now, was that good or bad? You can make the argument either way, but it allowed a guy like me to, to, get, in the to game. get into the game. And so that's one huge shift, right? The ability to get into the game as an investor is drastically different. It, it's ebbed and flowed. And, you know, decade ago, anybody could get back in and that imploded on us. So now it's very hard for people to get back in. Uh, so we have that aspect of things. But I think the biggest shift has been in things we've seen around legislation and around rules governing what investors can and can't do. Right? So if, we, if you and I had sat down here 18 months ago and you said, Mark, what are the odds that the federal government will pass a national emergency law that'll make it illegal for you to evict a tenant under any circumstances? I just said, well, gosh, if that law passes, I'm out. Are you kidding? I'm jumping out. Of the I think we're on the seventh floor. <laughs> I'm jumping out the seventh floor window. That, that's ridiculous. Are you kidding me? Well, look what's happened. Mm -hmm. And th that passed. Many of those ordinances are still there. There's remnants of those ordinances. Like I think it is harder to do the business of property management today than ever before. You know, we, we've been doing this a long time. And it used to be the wild, wild west. You, you could kind of get a few little boundaries, a few little rules. But other than that, you could pretty much do what you wanted to do. Well, that, that pendulum has swung so far the other direction that it is harder today to do property management by a factor of 10 than ever before. Now, what do you say about that? Net, net negative, net positive? Some net people, negative. Some people see that burden and they think that we are even more needed as the qualified party to be managing in a more legislatively compliance heavy environment, even more of a need for professional property management. You and I have certain political sensibilities and regardless of what the, those are, everybody's gonna have different interpersonal feelings about the law, liberty, legislation, bureaucracy, blah, blah, blah. A business owner needs to be able to divorce that from how is this going to impact my business and my ability to make money? How do you feel about how it impacts the environment and the need for professional pro uh, property management? Yeah, and, and I, I get that argument, right? The idea that, hey, if, if it gets really hard to do, people are gonna need us even more. And, and that's logical, that makes sense. But that doesn't change the fact that it gets really hard to do. <laughs> I mean, if I have to pick one, I'm gonna pick it really easy to do. And do I have a few less clients? Yeah, sure, but it's easy. So yeah, if we're looking for a bright side, yes, that's it. But to me, that's not a very up. That, Still that's, not that's negative. A pretty sad view. upside, yeah. right? The fact that oh well, it's so hard now <laughs> that they have, they need me. I know that, but it's hard. It, it's it's never been harder. I think. I think it's never been riskier as well, right? The, the idea of lawsuits. I, I do some expert witness testimony stuff because I, it's silly, but I do it in Colorado. 
and I step into these things and it's just, I, I leave everyone. I'm thinking, why am I doing this? This is ridiculous. The, the, the liability we have as property managers today is through the roof compared to what it used to be. And if, and if you do something wrong or if you, you mess up, boy, it's not just a, Oh, we'll make it right. It's okay. We're someone's getting sued. Mm-hmm. And uh, so there's that aspect of it as well. So I think on one hand you have, the, you have the risk higher than it's ever been before. In the reward side, I mean, if you want to look at it financially, that's to some aspect, I think, lower than it's ever been before. Now, now you, you know, people can make arguments that, yeah, you can make a lot of money. And yeah, you can in this industry, but not compared to what it used to be. It, it used to be much more open on that. So if you have a broad spectrum, I just don't see how anybody can make the argument that, man, this, what, a, what a great time to get in this business. Man, I, I mean, knowing what I know now. If we had to start over, I, I don't know. I mean, we, we've done very well for ourselves, so don't, don't get me wrong. But it's it's tougher than I think people realize because this is all we know. Uh, one quick example, right? This is a number of years ago. I was talking to a guy in Texas. This is like 20 years ago. And we were talking about what happens when someone doesn't pay rent. Now, this is Texas, okay? Mm-hmm. So they're a mm-hmm. little bit free anyway, right? The guy, here's what the property manager says. He said, Mark, he said in a Southern drawl, right? If my tenant doesn't pay rent, I don't know how they talk in Texas, but in my mind, they do. Close if enough. my tenant doesn't pay rent, I just go take his front door. <laughs> I was like, I was like, what, what do you mean? He's like, well, it's my door. I just take his door off and I say, when you pay the rent, I'll put your door back on. Now, that's a little bit crazy. Either, right? But that was kind of the mentality of, you know what? You do what you need to do. Now, you flip to today where, hey, if your tenant doesn't pay rent and they don't want to do anything, you, it's going to be tough. It's going to be tough. So... How's that for a grim first five minutes of our conversation? Yeah, wow. Really getting us us gassed up here. So (laughs) as you think about the reflections of the adjustments to make in light of this changing environment, regulation, that's one aspect of it. Macro, economics, that's another dynamic, right? You got a hot sales market. A lot of folks are feeling that pressure, which, you know, it's a weird dichotomy, right? Because you have some folks saying, boy, a lot of sales in my market. You have other folks saying, boy, a lot of new business in my market. There's a, I think there's a migration rather than a uniform treatment happening here nationally. You work with, you coach clients, so you're having boots on the ground, one-on-one conversations. What are you seeing there about that shift? Yeah, and that, that, you nailed the word, right? Migration. I mean, it, it, this is, you see the headlines with these catchy little titles, right? Well, there's another one for you, right? The great migration. Of California to Texas, investors. wherever. That's right, that's right. So I, I have the benefit of, of doing some coaching and speaking to a lot of different property managers throughout the nation. And it's very interesting because there, there is no normalcy in activity level for, for owner clients. So you've got some states, and I think a lot of this is, is legislation-based, and I think a lot of this is also just the economics of things like cap rates and how much money can you get off your investment. You've got some places geographically that real estate investors are getting out of. I mean, look at me. I own real, I've owned real estate for 20 years. I'm selling my real estate. Cashing out. I'm cashing out to some extent. I own in Colorado. Okay. And and it's not worth the risk anymore. I love real estate. I love it. But I can't rationalize putting my money into real estate in Colorado when when the risks are so high. Now, I have a lot of friends doing the same thing, but they're pulling out of Colorado. Now, they're not taking their money and going home. They're just redeploying it. So they're looking at different states. They're going to the south. They're going to places like Florida and Tennessee and and. Uh, the Carolinas. So, so there are opportunities. So when I, as, as a property management guy, as kind of a business coach, when I talk to people in some geographic areas, you know, our conversation starts and they're like, Mark, I'm, I'm bleeding doors is what one, one person's. I'm bleeding doors. It's like I, everybody's selling and, and nobody's coming in to replace them. Because, and it's not their business. It's, that's the nature of their market. 
because investors aren't attracted to that market for whatever reasons you want to give. But those same investors that are selling that property, like me, we're, we're taking our money, we're going somewhere else. So I talk to other folks that are in different geographic areas and they say the exact opposite. I, I know people in all seriousness, Jordan, that have a waiting list mm. to get into their company. Now, if I, to, if I tell that to the clients that are like, oh, I'm bleeding doors. Like, yeah, I, I know another guy who's got a waiting list. They'd be like, well, what are they doing? Mm -hmm. And they're not doing anything different. They're in a different geographic area. Mm. So it, it's a different mentality of those two clients. Mm -hmm. One's kind of in survival mode right now, or a lot of folks are, and that, that's fine. That's the nature of that, and they'll be fine. And other folks are just reaping that bonanza because they've got people literally in line who want to hire them to manage their property because they're bringing their money to these other places. Oh, we got to make hay while the sun That's is exactly shining. Exactly right. That's exactly right. Back in uh, back in 08. So you've been doing it in terms of when you said that your dad called and asked you to come in as a property manager, what year was that? That would have been uh, well, was 22 years ago. So Okay. So so here. you you came in with some wind up into 08. Mm -hmm. You got to see the transition afterwards. And I think there's some universal consensus. Those are some good years in that kind of turn afterwards, that upward swing in the market. We find ourselves at this place now where people use terms like the everything bubble. Things are just kind of universally hot. Economy is hot. One of the implications of that is also inflation. People have differing views. Some people look at the CPI. Some people look at shadow stats. Do you see any or do you feel that inflation is going to have an impact on what we do globally as related to, to um, flat fee versus charging a percentage? Are you seeing any impact on the folks that you work with? Yeah. I think the biggest thing we as property managers need to do is make sure our owners understand that things are about to get really expensive. Right? I mean, th think of a profit and loss statement. Okay. You've got one line of profit at the top. You got your rent. And then underneath that, you've got your, your 12 different lines of expenses as a property investor. And you've got your HOA dues. You've got your insurance. You've got your capital improvements. You've got your repairs. You've got all, taxes, all those things. Well, if you look at all those expense items, they are all, they either have gone up or they're about to go up pretty substantially. I'm in the Denver market. One of the most common things I hear, not only in our market, but from every property manager is, hey, Mark, do you have any tricks or suggestions on how to find good vendors? Mm -hmm. We can't find mm -hmm. any vendors. Mm -hmm. And the ones we can find are really delayed. Flaky. And, and they're flaky. And man, their prices are high. Do you are, are there any tricks? And the answer is no. There's no tricks. Prices are going up. Right? Plumbers are charging a premium. Why? Because they can. Mm -hmm. I, had, I had a guy come out to my house, my, my house. I turned my heat on a couple weeks ago. Wouldn't kick on. So I call an HVAC guy and uh, he comes out. And first of all, I was a little offended that me as a property manager, my heat has the nerve to go out on me I mean, as a property manager. But Wrong. it goes out. It was, it, was, it was awful. And the guy comes out and uh, he got it going pretty well. And, and so I'm talking to him. I said, hey, I'm curious, like, uh, you know, parts and things. Are you guys having trouble with that at all? Like if I needed a part, would that be a problem? He goes, oh, man. He said, if you needed a plastic part, you're, you're kind of stuck because we can't get plastic parts right now. For these mm -hmm. things because of the the supply chain issues mm -hmm. and the china stuff, you know all this stuff he said so thank goodness you don't need a part because you'd be really really far out on that and and, and they charged me 300 bucks and I, of course i paid it but that that's that's the going rate in the last month i bet we've had four or five emails from different vendors that we use like good vendors folks we've used for a long time and every one of those emails basically said the same thing Hey, our costs are going up. Be prepared. Our, our paint costs are doubling. Our carpet supplies are going up. Everything's going to be more expensive. Just wanted to let you know. And, and 
we're fine with that to some extent. That's the reality. But I think we as PMs, we need to be proactive in telling our owners to be prepared for that. Mm. Because every property manager has that experience of fixing something for an owner client. Mm -hmm. And the owner client calls and says, hey, are you kidding me? Why why is this plumbing bill so high? Why is this painting bill so Mm -hmm. high? Why is this carpet bill so high? Or or you gave me that carpet bid. It's too high. Go get me another one. Mm. And we as PM say, okay, I'll try to get you another one. But what we're telling our team and and different folks is you got to stop that. Instead, you need to say, hey, I realize you're going to get expensive bills. Mm -hmm. This is the nature of the economy. Mm -hmm. This is what's happening right now. And you can explain it away however you want, but things are going to get more expensive, Mr. Owner. So we just had uh, this month, we sent out a, a video and an email to all of our owners. And we titled it Inflation in Real Estate. And we're basically prepping our owners to be prepared for expenses going up on maintenance on everything else now what's the impact on returns what are you seeing in terms of rent escalation rent growth keeping up outstripping these other increases you're seeing and what's what's kind of the net picture for the owner the net picture that we're seeing is is net negative so you've got every expense item including taxes and insurance and everything else going up pretty substantially. Now, rents are going up everywhere. I mean, rents, that, that's the good news. If right. we're looking for more silver, silver lining, rents are going up, which is a good thing. You know, will rents go up fast enough to offset all of these cost increases? Probably not. Probably not. And then, you know, you know to kind of pivot to returns, as, as you mentioned, um, I was talking to a guy just the other day who was telling me, hey, you need to come to Virginia and, and buy real estate here. He said, I can get you a 4% cap rate. Cap rate is like your return on investment. And uh, historically, if we're using big picture perspective here, a 4% return on your investment is terrible. He was bragging to me mm. that he could get me a 4% return on my money mm. if I come to Virginia and invest in Virginia. Forget cash flow. Forget cash flow. It's just a return on investment, a 4%. That's awful. That's awful. So if, if we look at it from a historical standpoint, that's not attractive. Right? I mean, if we go back in time a little bit, uh, the old rule of thumb, like forever in real estate, if we go way back in time, was was the 1% rule. The 1% rule mm-hmm. said, if you buy a house for $100,000, mm-hmm. you should be able to get 1% of that or $1,000 per month in rent. If you buy a house for $200,000, you should get $2,000 a month. That was the, the rule of thumb. Like that doesn't even doesn't make sense anymore. Mm-hmm. And and it's, you know you look at interest rates and interest rates have come down, so therefore cap rates have come down. It's, it's all economics, but it's that's one of the reasons, as I said earlier, it, the risk is too high, the reward is too great, in my view. Yeah. So you talked about chasing the opportunity as it pivots and and as it moves, and I think that's a really progressive view. One of my favorite books of all time is called Outsiders, and it tracks the top seven CEOs of all time as based on shareholder returns. And one of the things that these people that were profiled in the book are notorious for is reallocating money, not on the basis of the business is making money, pump it back in, grow the business. They were oftentimes willing to take money out and to find a higher yield elsewhere, even though it was inconvenient, awkward to take money out of one business and to put it into another. When you think about ideas for property managers to explore alternatives, to diversify other business units, other investments, what comes to mind for you? That's interesting you bring that up. Great book, by the way. Great book. Uh, so one of the things that we're exploring right now as it relates to that is uh, homeowner associations, HOAs. And uh, that 
that concept. Some property managers hate it, some love it, but I think that is that's an opportunity that's worth exploring because every one of these new home communities that's getting built has an HOA. So and, and that's necessary, right? And you can make the arguments, yeah, we love it, we hate it, oh, you should do it, you should, but but it's an opportunity mm-hmm. that should I think should be explored by every property management company. That's one. I think another big potential opportunity is is the short-term rentals. Um, some PMs have ventured into that, some have not, but that's a that's an opportunity out there to either manage them uh, and or own them mm-hmm. from that standpoint. So I think those are the two things that that make sense from a property manager's business model that you could somewhat easily bring in. Mm-hmm. It's a very complementary mm-hmm. business side of things. And then I think the idea of maintenance as well. You know, whether you run a maintenance division out of your company, um, there's been a lot of conversation about, you know, should maintenance be a profit center? Uh, I think it has to be today for most companies. But as you're going to see maintenance expenses go up, it's it's even more necessary to ensure that as we put more of our time and effort into the maintenance divisions of our company mm-hmm. doing repairs, that that is something that we're capitalizing on in order to provide that high level of maintenance service to make sure that that's that's a profit center for us. Now, what have you tried in the past with maintenance? Have you have you have you what are you doing currently, and what have you tried in the past? Uh, we, we've tried everything. In house, <laughs> we've had in house. We've done everything uh, today, and I like this the best. This works the best for us. Is just to have a maintenance oversight fee. Uh, so, I mean, maintenance markup. We, we strike the word markup. So in our office, if someone uses the word markup, they've got to put a quarter in the nickel <laughs> nice. in, in the bucket. So I need swear a word from you. That's right. That's right. It's not a markup. It's an oversight fee. Okay. That's how we explain. Sure, that's the value add. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Uh, so that's how we do it, and, and we've done it in house. We just found that, you know what, we can make almost as much money by having a maintenance oversight. Without the logistical without, coordination, yes, the exactly. people on without the payroll. Without employees, without managing a division. Uh, and I'm all about ease of business. I want, I want it easy. I don't want to work any harder than we have to work. And what's the structure of the company? Departmental, portfolio? It's kind of a hybrid, really. Um, and I know people throw that word around and it's kind of a cop out. But you know, we've got a thousand doors. We've got property managers that manage their portfolio. Mm-hmm. But we pull out certain aspects of the management of that portfolio and we move those into more of a departmental style. So we have an accounting department. We have a leasing department. Uh, we have a resident service department, really. So our property managers, they manage that portfolio, but they don't have to do things like the accounting, the, the uh, rent collection, the leasing, because we want them to spend their time on more high value client classes. relations. So what does that allow them to scale to somebody in that paradigm? What would be kind of the upper end of what a property manager in that paradigm could manage in their portfolio? Anywhere from 80 to 125 doors. Got it. Okay. You know, what's interesting is this debate between departmental portfolio, hybrid, et cetera. It's been going on for a long time. Departmental is more in vogue. Uh, portfolio. I have seen portfolio scale. I've seen portfolio scale up to upwards of 2000 units, which I think is kind of interesting in terms of what you like about portfolio. Obviously these are things that are hard to change mid stride, but it sounds like you have made some changes. What's the argument in favor of, and what do you like about having that primary point of contact? And then that, that PM role still preserved. So before you, uh, you rolled the cameras here. You never talking. And uh, one of the things that you and I talked a little bit about was that idea that different property management companies can do business in different ways. Yep. There's no one right way. And, and I made the comment, yep, I agree 100%. But I think there are some like hold tight, fast foundational rules that if you break it, it it's doesn't not matter what well. else you do, it's not going to go well. One of those foundational rules for us, and I really believe across the board, 
as much as possible is every owner should have one and only one point of contact in the business. If property management companies call their owners and say, hey, what, what do you not like about us? Why do you, why do you hate us? The number one answer you'll get is because I don't know who to talk to mm. when I have a question. Mm. I call in mm. and you're like, oh, that's a leasing question. Let me transfer the mm. leasing mm. department mm. or leasing person. Oh, you have an accounting question? Oh, that's Susie. Mm. Well, actually, she quit last week. You got to talk to Betty now. And oh, you have a question on your maintenance? Oh, you have to talk to your maintenance guy. That, that, that's not a good aspect of, of doing business. I think we are a relationship-based business. Absolutely. At the end of the day, I know we manage real estate, but it's relationship-based. And relationship means relationship, mm -hmm. person to person. So we want our owner clients to have one and only one point of contact. Now, if they have an accounting question that their property manager can't answer, their property man our property manager may need to bring in our accounting person or bring in the leasing person. But that's what's really worked well for us is we get to say to our owner client, hey, when you have a question, this is your guy, this is your gal. This is who you will talk to every single time. Mm -hmm. And that has been foundational for us. And I think companies that, that, that go the portfolio style, they risk that idea of having too many points of contacts and owners get frustrated and then the owner doesn't feel that it's a relationship. Mm -hmm. And so they're gonna leave. You're much more likely to leave a relationship than you are a transaction. Inefficiency at the expense of relationship. That's what you're talking about here. It may yeah. be more efficient to have the owner figure out who to talk to and to follow all these rules. And I think that's, you know, that's that's a really interesting aspect of the difference between long-term versus short-term. The people in the short-term, they get that it's hospitality. Mm -hmm. And so therefore they just kind of optimize for experience and those kinds of considerations. Long-term optimizes more for some of the harder aspects, of some of the enforcement, the contractual, the legal. What if something bad happens? We got you covered. It's risk management. And so that thinking adds so much value when something bad does happen. The owner can know I'm protected. I'm working with a professional. They understand the legal landscape. And so accordingly, there's an enforcement aspect of that relationship, but it can have a hard edge. It can have a an efficiency, protect your downside mm -hmm. um, kind of thinking. And you know, there's, there's some balance there. Absolutely. You're coaching people. And I know that you're coaching people towards making money in this business. They want to love what they do, but at the end of the day, let's be honest, we're in business to make money. So the bottom line profit, it's there, it's not going away. But what I observe is that there's a bit of a trend or a conversation in the industry around to doing two things simultaneously, getting costs as low as possible and ramping revenue per unit as high as possible. And my thought is, I can see the value and the merit in that conversation. Obviously, it's pretty obvious on its face. But long-term, to have a business strategy of doing those two things, I don't know. Like there's, there's more to the business than lowering your labor costs and charging your owners as much as possible. There has to be kind of balance. What do you see as the right balance in navigating those priorities and making it a win-win for your company, for the owner, and for, for yourself, the owner, and your team members? Yeah. So I think sometimes it's helpful to break away from our industry for a minute, right? And look at other industries. Totally. Do that. And, I, and I think a great analogy is like the hotel industry. So last week I was in, uh, I had the opportunity to speak to our state realtor association. They went up to Colorado Springs to like the premier 
hotel. It's called the Broadmoor. You mm. been to Broadmoor? I haven't. No. Okay, put it on your list, man. All right. I had never been there before. I was blown away. It was amazing. You, know, you pull up, and the bellhop comes out, takes your stuff, and he literally, as he's walking me into my room, he's like, "Mr. Cunningham, is the temperature okay? May I adju- may I adjust the temperature for you? Would you like um, some uh, more water? Can I get you some water? Can I get you a drink?" Like. I, it was crazy. Mm. I was actually enjoying myself. I was like, at that point, I said, you know what? Yeah, take the temperature down a degree because I'm, I'm, I'm spoiled, man. I'm going I'm to buy into this. I'm going to be spoiled. Now, I paid a pretty penny to stay there, okay? And I loved every second of it. Mm. There are other people that were at this conference that decided they didn't want to stay at the Broadmoor. They went across the street or across town to the- La Quinta. La Quinta. Yeah, and that's fine for them. Now, they thought I was crazy for paying those rates. I talked to some of them. They're like, Are you, you paid how much to stay here? You're a nut. I would never do that. They want La Quinta. Now, I, I promise you, when you check in at La Quinta, they don't ask you if they can adjust the temperature for you. They don't. Now, those are two different business models. Mm-hmm. Can you make money in both? Mm-hmm. Yes, you can. Yeah. But you have to decide as a company owner- which business do you want to provide? What playbook are you running? Yeah. I'd rather provide Broadmoor level service mm-hmm. and charge Broadmoor level pricing mm-hmm. than manage a La Quinta with people who are penny pinchers and they're looking out for every nickel and dime. It's just not as so much fun. Mm-hmm. Not much fun. Now, there's, there's pros and cons of both. If you're running the expensive service, you're probably going to have a smaller client base of people that are willing to pay that much more. But that's okay, mm-hmm. I think, because when you run the numbers, if you look at it through a CEO mentality, mm-hmm. you've got to decide where, where is that balance and how do we find that that price point? So we've always been of the mentality that, you know what, we're going to charge a little bit of a premium and we're going to, and we better provide a premium service. Right. If we don't provide a premium service, we're, we're doomed. So if you're thinking you're going to charge premium prices, but not provide a premium level of service, you're going to, you're going to fail. But that's the game I'd rather play versus the race to the bottom and how much can we cut in our prices. Because if you cut your prices too far, you're going to have to cut your service. I I don't think you can provide a premium level of service without charging a premium level of fees. You just can't because you can't attract the right people. You can't provide that level. So you've got to – but the – the trap comes when you, when you try to have it both ways. Mm -hmm. Oh yes. yes. We provide the premium level service and we charge next to nothing. Can't do that. that. That's not possible. Well, there's also a whole conversation here around the functionary versus fiduciary dichotomy, the amount of authority that you take in the conversation, mm-hmm. what you're willing to do and not willing to do. How how have you navigated that in the evolution of your own company? Because it sounds like you're clear in where you want to be now. Was that a philosophy that your dad had? At what point along the line did that clarity come? I think it's always kind of been part of our philosophy. We, we, we've always been very relationship-based, making sure that the owner-client is a good fit for us and vice versa. And I think that idea of making sure that your owner client is a good fit for your business model right. and for the level of service and the level of control you want is more important than ever. And, and to come full circle in our conversation because of what we talked about earlier with the difficulties in management, right? The difficulties in legislation, the difficulties in making quick decisions, right? If tenant cries mold, what do you do? Mm-hmm. Well, what you cannot do is say, okay, hold on, let me call the owner and see what they want to do. Mm. You can't do that anymore. You can't because you've got to make quick decisions and you have to have a high degree of control. Mm-hmm. Now, that a lot of owners don't want to give you a high degree. We had an owner call this the other day. The first thing he said, I've got a portfolio of homes. I've been managing myself. I do not want to give up control of these things, though. I want you guys to assist me in the management. That's what he said. Uh, end that conversation. This is not going to work. We don't want that owner. We don't want mm-hmm. that owner. Because, because things are so difficult to operate, to manage, mm-hmm. because there's so much liability, we need control times 10 mm. of these properties. Mm. One thing is we say to an owner when they're, we're having this conversation is, Mr. Owner, when, when you give us the key to the front door of your home, 
along with that key has to come a very high degree of control. Mm. We're going to be spending your money and, and we're not going to be telling you about it all the time. Now you're hiring us for our judgment, right? But if you're not willing to give us that control, then let's just stop now and, and not have this relationship. Now, a lot of people will stop now. That means it's going to be harder to grow. That's why it's taken us as long as it has to get to a thousand doors. We could be a lot bigger. I don't want to be a lot bigger. I'd rather have a little bit smaller group of clients and still have a high degree of control so that when things start to go wrong, we, we can make the decision to fix it, mm-hmm. um, number one. And number two, we have the relationship side. And we talked about that. Right. So when something does go wrong, now it's not my quote unquote maintenance department calling and telling my mm. owner we had to replace mm. their hot water heater. Now it's Sherry the property manager, mm-hmm. who they have their relationship, calling and saying, hey, how you doing? Hey, bad news, we had to replace the water heater. But now they can take that bad news because we rely on the relationship. Yeah, this is such an interesting conversation to me. What are some other examples of some lines that you will not allow to be crossed? Like, for example, what is your reserve? What's your spending threshold? What are, what are some other areas that you feel like are really important for for managers to kind of draw a line in the sand to get to this fiduciary rather than functionary mindset? I think it starts with in that, in that first conversation, right? So pretend you're a property manager and the owner calls in, you're having a conversation and they say, which they always say, hey, send me your management agreement and uh, let me take a look at that. I'm going to mark it up and I'll send it back to you. Yeah. When they say, please send it to me in Word version <laughs> yeah, so I can right. edit it. Right? Okay, that, that's your red flag. Right? So I think that's a big part of it is the negotiation. Are you willing to negotiate your management agreement? Because when typically when people want to negotiate the management agreement, they're not so much concerned with price. I mean, maybe they are. But typically, it's a, it's a control issue. Mm-hmm. Right? When you go to your doctor and you're checking in and they give you all those papers to sign before mm-hmm. you go back, right? sign here, do this, this is the HEPA form, this is... Imagine if the guy was like, or the guy was like, you know what? Um, that's fine, but I'd like to strike paragraph seven. Mm-hmm. Let's change the verbiage in number seven, mm-hmm. and then I'll let the doctor mm-hmm. see. They'd be like, "What are you talking about? Drama this is the alert. way we do business. If right. you don't like this, then go somewhere else. Mm-hmm. We don't do that." Well, that's the mentality I think we as property managers need to have. We are experts. The laws we have to follow, the risk we take on behalf of our clients, it it has to be this way. We know what we're doing, and we have to explain that to our owner clients prospective owner clients. And if a prospective owner client isn't willing to accept that, if they want to demand that, well, no, I want you to call me before you ever initiate eviction. Mm -hmm. I want you to call me before you ever spend money on my property. I want you to check with me for, well, then then you're not willing to give us control. You don't trust us is Mm -hmm. how we look at that. So we're not mad at you, but that's not the way we operate. We operate under a high degree of control. We'll, We'll call you if your property catches on fire, but other than that, you're probably not going to hear from us because you're paying us to do these these things. Now, what's the inverse of that, Mark? For the, the realtor that got into this accidentally to do some clients a favor, manages five properties, and they're thinking, yeah, I want to be respected as the fiduciary and given a high degree of autonomy. It does need to be earned. There is a material skill set. For somebody earlier in their career, what does the path of the actual hard skills look like to get to the point where you are truly worthy of that level of autonomy and trust and independence? Yeah, good question. Good question. I think it's all, it, it lays on the foundation of education, education-based information to your owner clients, right? Your owner client doesn't know how smart you are mm. until you start educating them. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean you tell your owner how smart you are, <laughs> right? You don't tell them how great you are, but you tell them what's going on. You and I started talking about inflation. Right? And I said, we're, we're sending out an email, a video, and an email to all of our owners this month telling them about inflation and telling them what to expect in the real estate. That's an education piece. That's an education tool. And we do that on a regular basis. We're constantly educating our owners 
and we use that word, right? Educating our owners of what's happening legislation-wise, what's happening in the market, what what kind of things are happening. So for from my perspective, that lays that groundwork for our owner to be able to say, man, these guys know what's going on. I can trust these guys mm-hmm. because they're They've got their finger on the pulse. They know the latest law. They know how to handle this aspect over here. They know what's happening with inflation. They know what's happening with the eviction laws. That's why I think they trust us. Mm-hmm. And, and we, we hear that regularly from our owner clients that they love that. So that, that communication, that mass, but yet personalized mm-hmm. communication of, hey, guys, here's what's going on in the market. Just want to let you know. Don't worry about it. We got it. Like We're on top of it. Don't mm-hmm. worry. No action is needed on your part. And we, we love those words, right? No action is needed on mm-hmm. your part, mm-hmm. but we want to just let you know that it's illegal to evict people right now. Mm-hmm. We want to let you know that cost of eviction just went through the roof. We want to let you know that it's going to be an extra 500 bucks for a water heater, you know, whatever it is. That then gives them the, I think, the... Uh, the confidence that, okay, these guys got it. They know what they're doing. It's a high leverage activity. It's coming mm-hmm. from the owner. Yeah, it is it's one to many. Let's talk about another high leverage activity. The coaching of your staff, your team members. What's your head count right now, ballpark? 25. 25 or so. Okay. That's, that's super relatable. At that kind of a size, you're going to get to the point where you've done all these jobs. So in theory, you know how to do each job that everybody is in. At the same time, there's enough distance that you also kind of don't really know. You're not really in the trenches. There, there's an acceptable and the a, a rewarding level of distance to have from the day-to-day if you're doing it properly. How do you maintain a level of rapport and context with your staff to feel like that people are on a path, they're bought in? How do you navigate those relationships for you personally across the, the board with your staff? Lunch. In a word, <laughs> in a word, lunch. lunch. <laughs> so, uh, so we got out of the habit of doing this during COVID, right? But one thing I've always tried to do is is go out to lunch one on one with every one of my team members periodically. Now we took the year off because of COVID type stuff, but I have found that there's no better effective way to do exactly what you're talking about, right? To relate to the person, to relate to their position, to hear what's working well for them. Not, I don't just mean within their business. It's side of things, but like, how are they doing? Right. I mean, from a personal level mm-hmm. side of things. So I, I've, I've started doing that again, uh, recently. It's been so effective mm. just reaching out and be like, Hey, you know what? It's been a while since we connected. Let's go out for lunch and, uh, no agenda and just, just chat. Now I did learn, let me just put in a parenthetical comment here. So, uh, when I started doing this with, with, uh, a while back with our first person, right? Hey, let's, let's do lunch. Okay, great. I, it was her birthday. I, I used to do it on their birthdays. Let's go out for lunch. So we're out to lunch, and it's our resident services coordinator, our front desk person, and we're getting towards the end of our our lunch. I said, hey, I just want to tell you, you're doing an amazing job. Like, I love having you up there. You're killing it. You're just doing amazing. And she goes, I said, what? She said, I thought for sure you brought me out to fire me. (laughs) I said, you think I would fire you on your birthday? Am I that heartless? And she's like, well, I didn't know. Like when the boss says, let's go out to lunch, Mark, like that's a scary thing. We need to have a talk. We need to have a talk. Oh my gosh, I'm so relieved. So I've learned now. I've learned, Jordan, that when I say, let's go out to lunch, I would say, hey, hey, no agenda. Don't worry, nothing bad. I just want to buy you lunch. So don't make that mistake. (laughs) I love that. That's a great share. Yeah. So Mark, I'd love to, to kind of wrap here talking a little bit about speaking. How many speaking gigs do you have a year? Oh gosh. Ballpark. Uh, On a normal year, you know, sans COVID. Uh, 30, 40. 30, 30, 30 or so. Okay. You and I have been to a lot of events, a lot of the same events, a lot of NARPM events, seen a lot of speakers. 
you've done more speaking than I, than I have at that scale, but I've spoken at a number of events. I think that the speaking gig is really interesting for a couple of different reasons. One is this one thing that I learned early on is that the, the, the greats, the people that really do it well, they dial in a small number of talks and they give very similar messages over and over and over again, and mm -hmm. they master them. I remember probably the best speaker I've ever hired comes to mind would be uh, either Marcus Sheridan or Joey Coleman. The talk that both of those guys gave at the conference that I hosted was the exact same talk that I had seen them give previously, almost verbatim. And the level of mastery and acumen that blew the room away was because they stayed in their lane. This is something that I had to learn the hard way because I don't know that I'm cut out to be a great speaker. I'm overly fascinated with the content and I want to make tweaks and adjustments. And once I get it right, I get bored and I want to change it. What has been your philosophy towards getting good at speaking and, and what's your kind of take on the whole speaking circuit? Yeah, that's a fascinating conversation. And, and I agree with you hundred percent. I think I've done enough of those things now, right? That yes, sometimes you go back to an, a, a same group again or like a pivot of that. And, and what do you think as a speaker is, well, I need to change it up, mm -hmm. right? Because mm -hmm. someone could be in there who heard my other talk. And so I, I better get fresh material. Right. And so for example, um, I went to an event and, and I did a talk and they're like, oh, that's great. We want to have you back to do this other thing a couple months later. And so I came back and I, and I and it was the same content. Like they said, we want the exact same topic. And I was like, okay, but like, it's going to be the same group of people. I need to change it up. So I went and I just, I tweaked a couple things. And uh, afterwards, the, the speaker comes up. She's like, hey, yeah, that was pretty good. She goes, hey, why didn't you tell that joke about your kids? <laughs> and I was like, what? She goes, why? That's the first thing she said. How come you didn't tell that joke about your kids? I was like, well, I did that before. She's like, I know, but I wanted to hear it again. Like some people didn't know that. They didn't hear that. And it was kind of like this life. I was like, oh, so I guess I can do like they wanted to hear it again. Yeah, it's, yeah. It, for me, it gets old. I'm like, I've told the same joke about my kids 30 times in the last 12 months. But you know what? That they want to hear that. People so, want to hear the hits yeah, over and over. Yeah. So it is a little bit of a of a presentation aspect. Yeah. Right. And, and it can feel fake a little bit, I think, for you as a speaker. And you've you just got to get over that. That because they, they don't want to hear a bunch of data. Right. 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 So there is a there is an aspect of presentation and timing and all that type of stuff. Even if you're giving a boring talk on on legislation yeah. or whatever. You've got to bring that in and you're right. Keep it the same. Mm -hmm. Don't change it up because they don't want to hear new information. They want to hear the joke about it. Keep it kids. the same and get good. And get good. Master it. Timing is everything. Ah, it's so true. Timing yeah. is uh, everything. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, I really, I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, my observation is that Speaking is is not well understood as to how exactly you're delivering value. Is it the intellectual concepts? You know, oftentimes people will say, what do they say? Red meat. Oh, that's a red meat. Actionable insights. I get that. I truly, I do. My observation is one insight, the right insight, one idea is enough. Mm -hmm. And to, to penetrate the consciousness, to get that idea to sink in is not to present it in a sterile clinical format. It's to wrap it in a story. It's to contextualize it for a specific person. When you think about right now with kind of the speaking that you're doing and the, the audiences that you're addressing, what messages are landing? What's, what's sticking with people right now? What I always say is the biggest lie in property management is that you think everybody else gets it except you. Mm. 
Everybody else here at this conference knows what they they're doing. They've got it together except me. Because we all come out and we want to show our, our front stage, don't yes. we? Like, you know what? You and I are both sitting here wearing suits right now. Yeah. They look very similar, by the way. We look sharp, don't we? Yeah. I think we look great. Yeah. Our front, my front stage is beautiful. Now, right. behind the stage, behind the curtain, it's a mess back there, yeah. man. It's a mess. But we don't want anyone to know that. And so you come to these events, and I think oftentimes we leave depressed, like, oh my gosh, everybody else is killing it. Everybody else has picked up another 30% of their door count this year. And, mm-hmm. and that's where I think I love the fact that I can have so many conversations with people to have my finger on the pulse. And when I say to someone, hey, you know what? And, and I believe this, the majority of companies are going backwards on their door count this year. I, I, I would bet my house on mm-hmm. that. And I tell, say it to someone, they're like, what? Everybody I talk to tells me they're growing at 20%. I'm like, of course they are. Because they're not going to tell you they're struggling, but right, they are. Right. So, so I think that's the big thing that people need to realize is, you mm. know what? We're all making it up as we go. Mm. We're all figuring this thing out. This is a tough business. Mm. There is no playbook exactly mm-hmm. on how to do this because every market's different. Every employee's different. Every owner's different. We're a tough industry. And it's a very rewarding industry that we've chosen. I mean, we, we get to provide a high, not just a high level of value, but we're providing one of the basic needs. Right? Mm-hmm. I tell my team, guys, we're in the, the life improvement business. That's the business we're in. Mm. Now, we may do it through real estate, but think of a tenant. Right? We got an email thank you the other day from a tenant. We moved him in. And we do it just like everybody else. It was one of our 10 leases signed that, that week. But they sent us an email. They said, hey, we just wanted to thank you for letting us move into this house. Our kid is so excited about the bedroom. They already know some kids in the school they're going to be going to. We are so excited to be raising our family in this house. Mm-hmm. That's the business we're in. It's beautiful. That's a life improved. We don't see that because we get so caught up in, oh, water heater blew up and I got to spend money over there. But I think we have to pull back and we as business owners have mm-hmm. to explain that to our mm-hmm. team of guys. Mm-hmm. I know it's mundane. I know it's difficult, but let's look at what we're doing here. Mm-hmm. When we realize that, that is what gets us up in the morning. Well, I think we can end it there, man. That was really inspirational. You're absolutely right. Everything we do can be a transaction or it can be an experience and a relationship and meaningful work and energy that we're putting out in the world. I appreciate you and your intention to educate and better this industry. I, you know, I'm, I'm on your email list, brother. So I'm getting those videos that you're putting out. I'm seeing the work that you're doing to help kind of elevate the mindset that people have. And I think it's making a difference. So thank you for your contribution to the industry, Mark. I've enjoyed this a lot. And thank you for what you do, bringing this to the industry. All right, brother. Until next time. Take care. Jordan here asking you, what do you got? What is a question you want to ask me? Can you stump me? Can you throw me something hard, perplexing, vexing, something you feel tied up in knots with? Throw it at me. I'll do my best to try and answer that question, to dissect it, to parse out the nuance and maybe help you get a bit more clarity. I'm looking for questions as the basis for creating content and you're looking for answers as the basis for clarity and wouldn't it be perfect if those two things matched up? Drop a comment, send me me an email, jordan at leadsimple.com. Let's stay in the conversation. Peace.